chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 18, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would illumine our minds, that you would turn on the lights so that we would understand what your word says. And Father, not only that we would understand it, but that we would rejoice in it, that we would be encouraged by it, that we would repent as we need, that you would help us apply it to our lives, that we would be transformed, and Father, that you would be exalted through it. So we'd ask that you would help us to understand your word today, that we would see the gospel encouragement that you were giving us to suffer for the gospel that we would recognize the abnormality of the Christian life that we live here in the U.S., that we would pray for our brothers and sisters in persecuted churches around the world, that we would desire to see people raised up even here and sent out, that you would even work in the hearts and minds of some here to be sent out to name Jesus where he has never been named. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, I, I want to start off a little differently today. Uh, I want to start off by talking to you guys about a pastor from the Acts 29 network. Um, his name is Pastor Rashid Emanuel. Pastor Rashid, the Acts 29 network is the network that we're involved with as, church plant, as a church plant. Um, pastor Rashid is the guy on the very, well, yeah, your way, on the right. If I'm facing this way, he's the guy on the right. Pastor Rashid is, uh, Emanuel is is a guy who pastored in Pakistan into his early 30s. Um, he was martyred on July 13th for his faith in Pakistan. Um, his, church is, his church is a church that, as a result of our support for Acts 29 Network, has been supported um, even by us to some extent. If you continue to go on, um, Pastor Rashid has been, had been persecuted for some time, as has his church in um, Pakistan, you can see here a Muslim mob had attacked the area, and you see pictures of him surveying the damage because the Christians have been brutally attacked there numerous times. Their facilities burned, um, their people harassed and hurt by mobs of Muslim people. Um, pastor Rashid continued to pastor in the midst of all of that, planting several churches, seeing multiple conversions to Christ, um, starting um, orphanages for orphan care having job training skills, etc. However, on, um, an, sometime in June, July, um, somebody had, don't go to the next picture yet, Eric, somebody had actually made a leaflet um, that was besmirching the prophet Muhammad. And they had put Pastor Rashid and Pastor Rashid's brother's name on the leaflet. 
and pass it out in the area of Pakistan. So he ended up going to trial for blasphemy against Muhammad in Pakistan. This is all in the Wall Street Journal, incidentally. He went to trial, um, and they actually won because they didn't make the leaflet. And so as they were leaving the court after they won the trial, several Muslim clerics were calling out for their assassination. And as they left and came out, he and his brother were both still handcuffed because they were going to be released from custody. And as they came out, he was martyred on July 19th, and this is him leaving now um, as he is martyred. I, you can keep go back to the next screen there, Eric. I show you that picture of Pastor Rashid and tell you his story for a couple of reasons. One, because he was our brother in Christ. He was a partner in the gospel with us who has left behind several family members um, and churches that are still in great danger and under severe persecution in Pakistan, and we need to be praying for them. We need to be praying for them. And I want you to see how real this is, what happens with Christians around the world. The second reason I show you that is because it actually has a tie to our text today, which is that Pastor Rashid is more an example. Now, I want you to get a hold of this because that scene looks so foreign to you that you're not sure what to do with it, probably, if you're like me. But Pastor Rashid is more of an example of the normal Christian life than any of us are. He is more a picture of the normal Christian life than you and I are. And I'm not saying that because by example, I don't mean that he's somebody we have to exalt and hold up, although God bless him for what he's done. And I'm sure he is receiving his reward even now. By example, I mean he's a better picture. He looks like the normal Christian throughout history, whereas we look radically abnormal. In fact, Peter writes this entire passage here in 1 Peter 3 to a persecuted church, a church that's suffering for their gospel witness. He starts off in verse 18 saying, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Why? Because he's tying back to verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In other words, Peter is trying to teach us, as the church, how to suffer well. How to suffer well in the midst of gospel witness. Jesus tells us that the world will hate us because of him. Jesus tells us that we'll be persecuted for righteousness' sake. We see the early church in Acts constantly praying for boldness. Why do they want boldness? To go out and preach the gospel to a hostile environment where they're likely going to be persecuted and killed for their faith. And now we have Peter preparing us for this kind of suffering as witnesses of the gospel. And if we're honest, we can read a passage like this and say, this really isn't relevant to me. It's not really relevant to me. This might be good, Chad, for a group of young people you're about to send into full-time missions, but it's not really relevant to me because we don't suffer like that here. Speaking about this, um, Pastor John Piper made the following comment. If it sounds irrelevant to you, it may be because you, like most Americans, are insulated from the bigger world outside of our own little country, which makes up about 5% of the total world population. And outside of our own little American era, 
which makes up about 5% of world history. For most of the world and for most of history, being a Christian has not been safe. Stephen Neal says in his History of Christian Missions that in the first three centuries when the church was spreading like wildfire, every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. Just think of it. Imagine doing evangelism in a context where you could not make any promises to people that things would go better for them on earth, but that if they believed what you offered, they would be risking their lives. Does that say anything to us about our evangelistic message and methods? See, that was normal in the context of this letter, and in most places of the world of the time, including now. You see, if we understand Christianity properly, then we understand that suffering for doing good, suffering for the gospel, is normal, and our experience in America is quite abnormal. We have Christian ministries that are going around making this incredibly abnormal appeal to unbelievers. And here it is. Incredibly abnormal appeal to unbelievers. If you believe in Jesus, your life will be better. You'll have a better marriage. You'll have better kids. You'll have better success at work. You'll have better management of your money. You'll have better thinking. You'll have a better government. You'll have a more directed life purpose. And all these things might be true in as far as they go. But these things are nowhere promised to you in the gospel. These aren't the gospel promise. The gospel promise is that you will be justified. That means that you're a sinner under the wrath of God, that you will be forgiven for your sins, that you will be declared righteous because your judgment was taken out upon Jesus. That you will be reconciled to God. Once you were an enemy, now you're a friend that you'll be adopted as his child, that you will be his and your life will be for proclaiming the excellencies of him who's brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And that you will likely suffer for this gospel witness and you may die. That's what we're promising the gospel. With that said, let's look at today's passage. And I want you to notice that Peter starts with the word for. For. For Christ also suffered in verse 18. He does this because in some way he's looking back to what he said and helping us understand what he said in verses 13 through 17. That's the context. Look at verses 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered. In other words, Peter is talking about being a witness for the gospel, and that you may suffer as a witness for the gospel. And he wants you to know that if you suffer for the, as a witness for the gospel, if you suffer for doing a good thing, he has some encouragement for you. I want you to have encouragement in suffering for the gospel, is what Peter's saying. And here it is. Christ suffered also. He's about to teach us about suffering for doing good by telling us how Christ suffered also. Now, I want, I want you to understand something, because it's really important that we make this clarification. 
Peter is not primarily saying, Jesus is your example, now go do what he did. He is primarily saying that Jesus has done it for you, now be encouraged. What what do I mean by that? Well, for us to say that Peter's primarily saying, Jesus is your example, now go and do what he did, is to talk about the law. And the law is holy and righteous and good, but the law does not encourage anyone. Doesn't encourage anyone. For him to say, I want you to hear this, I know it's hard to suffer for doing well, but Jesus did, so follow his example. And you're struggling with that difficulty and that suffering? He says, Jesus is your example. Now, here's the thing, I know you're having a hard time, and this is tough to suffer this way, but I, I, want, you, I want to do something for you. I want to show you how unattainably high the standard is for suffering well to encourage you. Right? That's not what he's doing. What he's saying is that it is unattainably high. Jesus is a perfect example. But most importantly, most importantly, Jesus already did this for you. He suffered well for well-doing. He witnessed to the truth through his humiliation and through his suffering to the point of death. He accomplished this for you, so now you have hope. You couldn't reach the standard because you're sinful and unrighteous, but the righteous one did reach it. And he reached it for you, and his death counted as payment for your sin, and his righteousness is credited to you. In other words, what Peter's telling us is the gospel should encourage us as we suffer for the gospel. So how does the gospel encourage us to suffer for the gospel? I'm going to give you five encouragements I think Peter gives us. Five encouragements from this text that we receive for gospel suffering. Here's the first one. The first one is that our justification, our justification encourages us to suffer for the gospel. Our justification encourages us to suffer for the gospel. Look what Peter says in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now I want you to hear the gospel. Christ, that is the Messiah, the God-man, God's son, suffered. That word suffered there in some Greek manuscripts is the word died. The picture here is that he suffered unto death. Once for sins. What's it talking about there? What it's talking about here is is sort of Old Testament atonement language. A lot of times we see this once, we think once for all. By once for all, it's referring to all time. Not all people, all time. He suffered or died once for all time. One time, at a point in time, Christ suffered. Why is the emphasis there from Peter? Here's why the emphasis is there. Because in the Old Testament sacrificial system, every year at the Day of Atonement, the Jews would get together, the people of God would come together, and they would offer, offer a new sacrifice for sin. That was always a picture of the lamb who would be slain, of Jesus. It was always a picture of Jesus. The blood of bulls and goats, the blood of lambs, never saved anyone. Hebrews is clear about that. It was always a picture pointing forward to the fact that one day there would be one final sacrifice for sins, God's own son on the cross. And that's what he's saying here. Christ also suffered once for sins. He made the final and full payment for all our sins. He did it. The righteous, look at the next part. So all our sins have been paid for, forgiven, cleansed, been put on him. The righteous, that's a singular, by the way. There's one righteous, one Jesus. For the unrighteous, that's in the plural. 
That's all of us. The righteous one died for the sins of the unrighteous ones. Jesus, Jesus, the righteous one, the one who was perfect, who kept the law, the one who was tempted in every way, yet without sin, suffered for unrighteous people like you and me, unto death. So that in the gospel, not only do we have a display of God's forgiveness for our sins, of God's payment of our debt on his son, but we also have a display of God's righteousness in Christ being credited to our account. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, who was perfect, who kept the law in every way, Jesus made him who knew no sin, be sin, that means take our sin upon him for us, so that in him, being united to him through faith, we might be the righteousness of God. We'd be declared righteous. As righteous as his own holy son. Why does our justification encourage us to suffer for the gospel? I want you to hear the encouragement. Because our greatest enemy is sin. Our greatest enemy is the coming wrath of God. Our greatest enemy is not physical suffering. Our greatest enemy is not Satan. Our greatest enemy is not evil men. Our greatest enemy is not oppressive government. Our greatest enemy is not Islamic terrorists. Our greatest enemy is our own sin and the coming wrath of God against it. Our greatest enemy is not a physical, temporal enemy. Not even a spiritual, i.e. demonic, temporal enemy. Entity. Our greatest enemy is the eternal punishment coming to us for our sin. That is our greatest enemy. So the best news is, the good news is, the greatest news is that the work of Christ has already conquered our greatest enemy. And if our greatest enemy has been conquered, then we can have courage to face down any lesser enemy. If I've already been given all things, if all riches are mine in Christ, if my greatest enemy of sin has been defeated, then I can face my lesser enemy for the sake of the gospel. If I have an eternal treasure in heaven with Christ, if I've been forgiven all my sin, and that's my eternity, then this little temporal suffering I go through, the little temporal enemies I run into, are no match for the glory. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 18, that what? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Hear that? That's the attitude of the Apostle Paul when he talks to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. In verse 22 through 24, listen to what he says. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Can you imagine that? But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Second, Not only our justification encourages us, but our reconciliation to God encourages us for gospel witness, suffering. 
Our reconciliation with God encourages us for gospel suffering. Look at the second part of verse 18 there. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That. Why did he suffer once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous? That. So that. Here's the reason. He might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, that means dying physically, but being made alive in the Spirit, that means by the power of the Holy Spirit, being resurrected. One of the great temptations, in fact, one of the greatest temptations in suffering, if you're honest, if you're anything like me, one of the greatest temptations in suffering is the question, where's God? Where's God? Has he abandoned me? We're tempted to cry out, my God, my God, why, why, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? But we must remember that Jesus cried that in our place so that we never need to again. He's brought us to God. He was put to death physically, was resurrected by the Holy Spirit. He has been victorious over sin and death finally and fully. Thus God is never far from us. He is always near us. It can't be otherwise because the Father will not reject the offering of the Son. The Son has accomplished everything that ever needs to be accomplished so that we're forever in God's presence. You may feel like the Lord has removed his presence from you. But the reality is, he would not remove his presence for you if you're in Christ through faith. And he cannot remove his presence for you if you're in Christ through faith. You're always his. You've been bought with the price. Your debt's been paid in full. And God stakes his justice on the fact of his ongoing forgiveness for Christians. Do you hear that? He stakes his own justice on the fact of his ongoing forgiveness for Christians. What do I mean by that? 1 John 1, 9, what does it say? If we confess our sins, that's homo legeo, confess. Homo same, legeo, say. If we say the same things about our sin that God says about our sin, if we confess our sin, he, God, is faithful, and I want you to catch this word, and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That ought to stop you in your tracks What do you mean, John, he's just to forgive us our sins? How is that justice? Forgiveness is never justice, it's always mercy. So why did you say he's just to forgive us our sins? Because he goes on to tell you that Jesus atoned for them already. He paid for them. He paid for your sins so that God is just to forgive you. It would be unjust of God not to forgive you now that you're in Christ and your sins have been paid for through him. He stakes his very justice on your forgiveness. Do you hear that? That's how secure your forgiveness is with God. It's as secure as God is just. Third, God's history of vindicating Noah. It's going to sound strange. God's history of vindicating Noah encourages us to suffer for the gospel. God's history of vindicating Noah encourages us to suffer for the gospel. Look at verse 19. He's just said in verse 18, he's been made alive by the Holy Spirit, in the Spirit, in which, that's in the power of the Holy Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, and I think rightfully the spirits now in prison should be, the, should be a word there at, per the NASB, New American Standard, as the word now there, and I think rightfully. 
because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, I'm going to be careful here because Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, um, said of this that a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. This is a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament to the point where Martin Luther finally says, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter is saying. Right? And a lot of scholars argue about this particular passage and what it means. Um, There are two predominant views out there as to what it means. There's one heretical view that's quite popular, which we're not going to get into. Well, I'm going to just target the view that I hold because today uh, my project is not to give you a long, drawn-out, scholarly interpretation of this particular passage. So at some other point, if you want to get into the debate on all the exegesis of this passage, come talk to me, but not right now. I'm just going to get to my view and how I think Peter's using this to encourage us in gospel witness. Here's what I think he's saying. I believe Peter is saying that there are people who are now in prison, in hell. People now in prison, in hell. Those people that he's talking about now in prison, in hell, were, when Peter's writing, they were in prison, in hell. But at one time, they were people who lived in the days of Noah. They were all the unrighteous people around Noah. And then what was happening was, Noah was building the ark for about a hundred years. And be promised by God that a flood is coming. And he's out while he's building the ark. Incidentally, we learn in 2 Peter that he's out, he was actually out preaching righteousness. He was preaching to the people to repent and to trust God and to get on the ark before God's judgment came upon the earth. And so God was waiting patiently for those people to repent for a time. And they didn't repent. When they didn't repent, they were swept away in the flood, and they died, and they went to hell. But Christ was actually, I think what Peter's saying, was actually himself preaching by the power of the Holy Spirit through Noah to those people who are now in hell. That's what I think the pastor is saying. I'm going to justify it. Here we go. You ready? Let me give you a short, sort of rapid-fire reason why I get there. The first issue is this. When you read the text, it sort of confuses you because it says in verse 19, in which he went, speaking of Jesus or Christ, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. In other words, one of the big questions that comes out of this text is, where were these people when Jesus preached to them, right? Were they in prison when Jesus preached to them? I don't think they were. I don't think the text necessitates that they were in prison when Jesus preached to them. I think it's saying he went and preached to them to spirits who are now, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits now in prison. I think the Greek text actually justifies putting the word now in there, which is why the New American Standard actually places that word in there, who are now in prison. In other words, it's it's like this, okay? Let me give you an example of what this would look like. We use this kind of speech all the time. Talk about Pastor Jason, right? Pastor Jason was born in 1984. Is that right, Jason? Right? You were born when Michael Jackson had already become white, right? Okay, I'm just making sure. That's how young he is, right? That's how young he is. Pastor Jason was born, you know, I think after all the Star Wars, three, first three had already been made, huh? That's how young, isn't that ridiculous? It's kind of crazy, huh? Yeah, if they put some context on it. But when I say Pastor Jason was born in 1984, I don't mean that when he was born, he was the pastor of Sovereign Grace. What I mean is, 
The man who we now consider a pastor of sovereign grace was born in 1984. Does that make sense? And so what I think Peter's doing here is saying that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits who are now in prison. He went back then to proclaim the spirits now in prison. Why do I continue to argue that? Here's the second reason. Because Peter talks about the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, Jesus before he was a man. He talks about him, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God, preaching through Old Testament prophets already in this book. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 11 briefly. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. These are the Old Testament prophets. Inquiring what person or time, now listen to this, the Spirit of Christ in them, that's the Holy Spirit operating on behalf of the Son or the Christ, in them was indicating when he, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. You hear that? In other words, what Peter is saying is the Son of God was already at work by the power of the Holy Spirit preaching through Old Testament prophets. That's an encouragement all by itself when we get a hold of the fact that whenever you proclaim the gospel, Jesus, who's at the right hand of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, is himself proclaiming the gospel through you. That's what he says. He was doing that. So I think first, that's the first issue there. I think it sticks out. The second one is this. Peter uses the word proclaimed, in which he went and proclaimed. That word proclaimed is almost always tied to the preaching of the gospel. And if you go to 2 Peter 2, 5, you find out that Noah was actually a herald of righteousness, proclaiming the gospel. So I think it's likely that what Peter is doing is tying Noah's preaching of the gospel to the fact that Christ was doing it through him by the power of the Holy Spirit. The next reason is that Peter modifies the word those who disobeyed. If you look at there, those who disobeyed. These are the spirits he preached to. Those who disobeyed when? In the days of Noah, right? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. God does not patiently wait for the repentance of any other beings but humans. So I think these human beings are the spirits being talked about in this passage that Jesus proclaimed the gospel to. Human beings who were in the days of Noah, people God who, whom God was being patient with. Finally, the point of the passage, I think the overall point of the passage, is to encourage us, encourage Peter's audience to suffer for gospel witness, to suffer well. And thus, contextually, it seems best to say what Peter's doing is this. I think, here's, I think here's Peter's argument. I want you to follow it. I want you guys to remember Noah. Do you remember Noah? He suffered ridicule when Christ proclaimed the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit through him. Just like you do when Christ proclaims the gospel through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember Noah? He was a minority. There were only eight of them total. Just like you're a minority in number in this world of unrighteousness. Yet God vindicated Noah when the flood came. God waited patiently before he brought the vindication as the gospel was proclaimed to those ungodly men during Noah's day so that men would repent. Just like he's waiting patiently to return and vindicate you while you preach the gospel to ungodly people so that men will repent. And by the way, it's exactly the reason Peter gives us 
in 2 Peter chapter 3 when he says, why is Jesus seeming to be delayed in his return? What does he say? The reason he's delayed in his return is so that you can preach the gospel because God's being patient, waiting for men to repent. Learn the lesson of Noah. Hear the encouragement? Hear the encouragement? Yes, you're a small minority. Yes, you may be mocked and ridiculed. Yes, you may even suffer death. You may not see how the gospel can ever be victorious. You may wonder how you can ever or if you will ever be vindicated. So did Noah. Learn the lesson of Noah. He had a promise that God would vindicate him and God kept his promise. And you have a promise that God will vindicate you when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead and he never fails to keep his promises. Learn the lesson of Noah. If you ever wonder, young people especially, how could I ever go to a Muslim nation and proclaim Christ where he's never been proclaimed in a context in which I might suffer and die and will probably see very little fruit? The answer is, remember Noah. Jesus will return and vindicate you. As you see our culture becoming increasingly secular, you may wonder, what is the use of facing ridicule for the gospel proclamation of these people? Remember Noah. Remember Jesus will vindicate you just like he did Noah. Fourth, our baptism encourages us to witness in the face of suffering for the gospel. Our baptism encourages us for gospel witness. Look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now it might seem strange, I think it probably does seem strange, it struck me as strange at first, to think that our baptism would actually be something that encourages us to suffer for the gospel. But I want you to hear the reason. The floodwaters of Noah's day actually reminded Peter, when he was thinking about the flood, it reminded Peter of baptism. See how he's talking about the flood, that eight persons were brought safely through water? Baptism, which corresponds to this now stage. It's like he said, you saw the flood, here's the type, and that actual Greek word for type is actually using here. Here's the type, the type, the flood is a type of baptism. God's judgment is poured out in the flood and eight people are saved through that flood. And it's a type or a picture of the baptism where water, just like in the flood, is poured out on you in judgment, God's judgment. So you die to your sins and you resurrect to new life. The water demonstrates what? The water is a picture of the fact that you have been united to Christ through faith that the old man is now dead, that the new man is now alive. The baptism is a picture of what? That you've been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's a picture of the fact that you were once in darkness and now you've been brought into his marvelous light. That's what baptism pictures. You've been united to Christ through faith, so the old man is dead, judged, crucified with Christ, and you are now resurrected to new life. That's what it's a picture of. It's interesting that he uses this word, they were saved, they were brought safely through water. The way that Peter words this is he doesn't say they were saved from the water. 
or from the flood. They were saved through it. Isn't that an interesting term to use? Why do they say they were saved through it? Why do they say through it? They were saved through it because wicked men were judged in the flood. And they were rescued from a kingdom of darkness and brought into a new kingdom, weren't they? They were saved through the flood. And your baptism is the same picture. And so you proclaim the excellencies of of the one who has done this marvelous thing for you. And so your baptism reminds you. We're told to remember our baptism because it is in our baptism that we have the picture of the fact that no matter the suffering and ridicule we face in this dark world, our old man is dead already anyway. We've been born again to a new life, a new hope, a new kingdom, and so our baptism encourages us to remember that. Now some use this text, and I'm going to deal with one small problem. Some use this text to say Peter is saying you have to be baptized to be saved. You guys heard that before? I've preached a whole sermon on that September 7th of 2008, so if you want to go back on the website and hear that in more detail, you can. But I just want to deal with it briefly here. Peter, some say, Peter says, well, look, it says here in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, i.e. the flood, now saves you. See, baptism saves you, Chad. How could it be any clearer than that? Well, I I think that they're correct in part and incorrect in part. So I want to be careful here. Why can Peter say baptism saves you? Because you must have the reality of what baptism pictures. In other words, baptism is a sign. It's a sign. It's a picture. And there's a thing signified, the reality Baptism pictures it, then there's the reality, the thing signified, the sign, the thing signified. Okay, you guys follow me so far? In Scripture, your baptism, having the sign and having the thing signified, are so closely tied together that they're almost indistinguishable. So that in some cases, you will have things like repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And you will go further into Acts 6, that's in Acts 2, go further to Acts 16, and now Paul is saying to the Philippian jailer, believe in Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. He doesn't actually tell him to be baptized, but then it says he was baptized. Well, did Peter and Paul have a different gospel? No, they don't have a different gospel, they don't have a different understanding of baptism. The idea is that baptism, the sign, is so closely tied to the thing signified that can actually say to you, baptism saves you, and I'm not lying to you. But baptism only saves you if you have the reality that it's picturing, if you have the thing signified that it's signing. That's the only way it saves you. And what's the thing signified? Union with Jesus Christ through faith. You have to have that thing. And Peter actually dismisses this notion because he wants you to know the water is not magic. You don't go in the water and the water gets on you and then, whew, you're good. You're saved. That water is magic water. That's not what he's saying. He actually dismisses the fact that people might think that's what he means. What does he say the very next thing? Not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, baptism doesn't save you because water poured on you and removed dirt from your body. But why are you saved through baptism? But, and here's the meaning of it, an appeal as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter says it isn't the water of baptism that saves you. The water 
pictures the reality of salvation that occurs when you appeal to God through a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is thus a picture of the new life you have in Christ when you believe the gospel. That's what he's saying. Fifth, our king's present rule, our king's or Jesus' present rule encourages us to suffer for the gospel. Jesus' present rule encourages us to suffer for the gospel. Look what he says in verse 22. Speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in verse 21, he says in verse 22, who, that's Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus is at God's right hand. He has authority over all angels, authorities, and power. The devil can prowl around like a roaring lion, as Peter later says in this, in this letter, can prowl around like a roaring lion all he wants, but as John Piper says, he's just a cat on a chain. You guys hear that? Why? Because he is subjected to the authority of the one who sits at the right hand of God, Jesus. You will face suffering and possibly even physical death if you go out to the world to witness for the gospel. But no demon, no terrorist, no government, no enemy, no one who has the power to cause you great suffering, no one who has the power to kill your body is someone that you should fear. Rather, the world, we, should fear him who has the authority to cast our body and soul into hell. Our King Jesus is the sovereign over all things. He was vindicated at his resurrection, and the good news is he is our king, and we are his people. And this should give us great encouragement to face suffering for well-doing as gospel witnesses. Because we know that Jesus is in control of everything. He's sovereign. He has all authority and power. So we should ask him, we should pray to the Lord of the harvest. We should pray that he would raise up many workers to go out into the harvest field. We should pray for the persecuted Christians that are already out there. We should appeal to God to raise up people among us, to support the people out there. We should appeal to the Father that he would open the hearts of the people in the nations around us, your family, friend, co-workers, and the people who've never heard, that he would open their hearts to hear the gospel, that they would believe and be saved. We should know that God is the one who can do this. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father with all authority, and he is the one who can do this. We should appeal to him to do it. And so here's what we're going to do. Um, the guys, if you guys can grab these mics and bring them out here. Eric, could you grab one? And if you could grab one as well, or Jason, grab one. That's fine. Bring them out here. Here's what we're going to do. Rather than closing my sermon in prayer, you guys will just have to, when you cut the sermon, just cut the rest of this part off. Rather than closing my sermon in prayer, we're going to pray corporately as a group. So we have mics out here. And uh, I'm going to encourage you all to come and, if you're, if you're a loud enough voice that you want to just pray from where you are super loud so everybody hears you, that's fine. If you want to come down to a mic and use one, that'd be great. But we're going to pray together for a little bit before we take communion. And here are the things we're going to pray for.
We're going to pray for unbelievers that God would be pleased to open their hearts to the gospel. We're going to pray that God would honor his word as it goes forth. We're going to pray for the persecuted church around the world, for the people in Pakistan, the family members and friends and church plants of Pastor Rashid who just was martyred and his brother incidentally was martyred with him as well. We're going to pray for those people. We're going to pray for boldness ourselves to share the gospel. Boldness for people here to be raised up, to go to the nations, to make Jesus known where he is not known. So that's what we're going to do. And so I'm going to ask you guys to pray with me in that way. So I'm giving you um, time. I I will begin the prayer, and then I'm going to ask you all to to join me. And whoever wants to pray can pray, and I'll close uh, when we're done. So let's, let's pray together. Father, we are thankful. We are thankful that you... That you are God and that you have brought your son from the dead and that he is seated at your right hand, that he has all authority. And so, Father, we pray that you would that you would be pleased to open the hearts of unbelievers, that you would be pleased to make your gospel known. Father, we pray that you would raise up people from this congregation, that you would call out those who will go and be workers in the harvest field that they will go to the countries um, that we oddly call closed nations, which are just nations that are normal for Christians to live in, that they will make the gospel known there, that they will have courage to suffer and die for the gospel, that Jesus would be known. Father, we pray that you would do that work even here, that you would support the persecuted church overseas.